And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the McCrude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf. One more time, and you really gotta wonder whether they're ever gonna get it right on the Coot Street Podcast! First of all, no, they're never gonna get it right, nor are they trying very hard, but we're having fun doing it. Isn't that what it's about? Also, we've never once played a, 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 a measure of Gershwin songs during the introduction. People keep saying we should... I uh, have music, really? and my argument is we have music. We mentioned Gershwin. Go listen to him yourself. <laughs> no one has ever said that to me. Who said that to you? People. People, people were offering people. to write theme music for us. People. <laughs> I'm not going to give you anything. We did. We were so bad. We had people, particularly the wonderful Amelia Beamer, attempting to compose music for our podcast because I would say things like, we really need a theme. And then we really wouldn't, well, I really wouldn't pay attention, and then it wouldn't happen because, yeah, you know life. Well, we, we, we don't produce it well enough. I have to ask you this. You put up on the website, on, on Facebook, a recording of the very first Cood Street podcast. Did you, did you dare to go back and listen to that? Oh, Lordy, no. No, 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 no. Okay, they're, all up, they're all up there all online. I mean, it's not like I put it back oh, yeah. up. I just relinked really to it. Um, it would be kind of interesting because my guess is it's just us doing what we've always done, largely because we hadn't even worked out what we were doing yet at that point. Well, we were just continuing the conversations we'd had. But one of the things we can remind our listeners of, because we do this every once in a while, and unfortunately only when somebody dies. Um, you know, we do have podcasts with Ursula Le Guin, with Gene Wolfe, with Neil Gaiman, with Peter Straub. There are all kinds of interesting people we've talked to, much more interesting than we are. Um, and speaking of Le Guin, I just got back from watching the local um, film center here showing the um, – Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, the documentary which has been making the rounds, I guess, of various places. Um, I guess they showed it at the Nebulas this year. I think it'll eventually end up on public television. And it's actually, and my first reaction to it is no different from anybody else's, which I first thought, this is the best documentary I've ever seen about a science fiction writer. And then my second thought was, what am I comparing it to? What else is there? <laughs> Oh, there must be stuff out there, and maybe it also there's, overlaps with some of the better book projects as well. You know, it's like well, because there, there's, there's a biographical short, element to these things. There's a biographical element to them. There were some short films that uh, have been, you know, put online to promote different books and that sort of thing. There was a documentary about Harlan Ellis and Dreams with Sharp Teeth, but it was it was like that recent biography, more about Harlan the celebrity and the curmudgeon than about the writer. That was not and, a good thing. That thing. Um, no. There's also you know, Tolkien biopics and C.S. Lewis biopics and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, this, but but and they're all kind of um, the same kind of mistaken approach to writing. I've not seen the Tolkien thing. To be honest, I'm not even sure I'll pay for it when it comes to rental because it follows this mythology that everything in an imaginative writer's work has to come from life. So Tolkien's experiences in seeing flamethrowers in World War I leads to dragons and this sort of thing, and he forms a fellowship at Oxford. And this is not the way imaginative people work. They don't just draw autobiographical elements and, and, and place them in fantasy worlds. The thing that made the, the C.S. Lewis film, I thought, worked, first of all, because of Anthony Hopkins in it, and secondly, mm. because it wasn't really about his writing. It was about his sort mm. of basically discovering sex very late in life. Yeah. And look, a lot of the I mean, the other reason, obviously, why 
you know, uh, writers' lives quite often don't make for fantastic documentaries and other things, though sometimes they do, is because, you know, the biography is of someone who basically spent a whole lot of their lives sitting in a room. Exactly, which is not interesting to watch. So it's very, and it's very difficult for an actor, uh, even a very skilled actor like Hopkins, to to convey that in some way. You you, you can't look thoughtful. You, you you can't strike writer poses for two hours. <laughs> uh, although that's what a lot of these movies are like. So you know, okay. And so this is what a straight documentary about her work or what? This is a, it's, it's a straight documentary. It does focus on her work. It focuses. It uh, it has a number of uh, speakers. The interesting thing I thought about it was that the people who are on screen most are Neil Gaiman, uh, who I think is he legitimately gave her the Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Book Council, and he re- de- described his experiences as a child, as a kid reading Earthsea in utter detail. David Mitchell. Uh, of all people, same, very articulate about about Le Guin, knew her very well. Michael Chabon and a very few people from our field. There was one brief uh, interview with Vonda McIntyre, and several pieces with Theodora Goss, who, as um, I don't know if I've announced this now, but if it, if it pressures her into getting the work done faster, she's supposed to be working on a book on Le Guin um, for yeah. the University for, of Illinois Press. For, yeah, for, for, for the Illinois Press series. But um, there was one of the things I appreciated about the film is that it, first of all, retained her sense of humor. A lot of it was Le Guin talking. Uh, and she was a very funny person. She was very witty. She was very acerbic and, um, and, and very good-tempered. And it did not try to pull her away from, um, from the science fiction and fantasy field. It, it didn't really talk much about her influences. It didn't show interviews with her contemporaries, except for Chip Delaney, except for Samuel R. Delaney, who was in it quite a bit. Um, But it didn't try to pretend she wasn't really a science fiction writer. And the whole course of her career, and the thing I thought was most admirable about her in her last years, was refusing to do what Vonnegut did, what Bradbury tried to do, what other people who have sort of gained mainstream recognition um, and the culmination of all this, which was very well represented without being just thrown out at you in, for, in, in a 20-minute segment, were the excerpts from her National Book Award speech, in which she basically said, I accept this on behalf of all the writers who have been excluded from what you guys do for all these years, <laughs> all the fantasy writers. And they, the screen showed a headline from some newspaper Le Guin burns down the National Book Awards, which <laughs> has got to be my favorite headline about any science fiction writer so far. And so the, the place to watch this is what? You have to fly to Chicago to a movie theater or it's around the world? It's going around to uh, – in this case, the, there's a, there, there was a well-known film critic in Chicago, Gene Siskel, and there's a film center named after him. And they show documentaries, revivals, things that don't make it to commercial theaters. This is a 69-minute film. It's not going to show up at your local multiplex. But my guess is it'll be showing up on television worldwide within a few months. Okay. And it is well-made. It's it's, it's a well-made, respectful film that talks about the fiction. Um, It spends a little bit too much time possibly talking about Ishii, The Last of His Tribe. That was her mother's book. Yeah about the, uh, this, the literally the last member of this tribe in, in, in Northern California who eventually yeah, – yeah. 
Yeah, he came to live with her. And one thing I had not thought, I had been under the impression that uh, Le Guin kind of grew up in this world. She, she died in 1911 or something. Uh, <laughs> she never met him, uh, but she grew up in, in, in the stories that her father and mother had told about um, about them. And there's a lot about uh, what Northern California must have been like before the white invasion that clearly, and the film makes this clear, clearly shaped Always Coming Home, um, which is now at, out in a new Library of America edition. I'll plug that too, because it has material which Le Guin added to this edition that was never printed before. So it's the I first complete... sense with that book, Gary. The book is, it's not a novel. I think this is the thing, and, and, and she virtually says this. It's, it's not the sort of, it doesn't have a through line. It doesn't have a plot to speak of. It's an anthropological document about an imaginary civilization, which is kind of what a lot of her work is, except that she always wrote narratives within those. And this is there, actually there's some very good short story kinds yeah. of things with yeah. always coming. But no, if you read always coming home, wanting to know how it's going to come out at the end, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is an element of that to it. So, yes. But, you know, speaking of, you know. Name yes. dropping and clangs, because obviously, you know, you've now referenced two of your employers in short order. Yes, I have. Are you? Are the, when the hell is the American science fiction books of the seventies coming out? Or the sixties? We still the sixties. We're still in the seventies by now. The sixties is the seventies is going to be a problem. The sixties will be out, I think, in September. Um, Dude, it feels like your sixties book has taken longer than the sixties. Um, it's it's coming up close on the sixties. It will be out nine years. It'll be out seven years after the nineteen fifties volume. Jeez. Now, part of this is, and this is my opinion. It's not it's not an official statement on the part of the Library of America, which I'm not allowed to make statements. My sense is that they they are very happy to be in the science fiction field now, and they are at the same time parceling out the science fiction over a period of time. For example. Uh, a, a few years ago, like two or three years ago, Lisa Yasek's uh, The Future is Female was published by them. Uh, they had three volumes of Le Guin since my 1960s volume came out. And I think that and, – and, and to some extent, I think this is true of mysteries and of other kinds of genre things, noir fiction. They don't want to do it all at once. Um, and to some extent, I think they don't want to if – if I were a publisher, I would think I don't want to – if I were a publisher that keeps things in print the way the Library of America does, I don't think I'd want to step on the sales of my previous volume with a new volume until I knew the time was right. Yeah, now, but that's – I mean, I mean how far – have you ever had, ever had a conversation? And this wasn't – listeners, what we're going to talk about, and I apologize because mm -hmm. we're digressing and – Yes. But <clears> – <throat> Have you had conversations about how far the box sets might go? No, not really. I mean, we've talked because about the, the 70s, 70s is, do is doable but has issues. The 70s the 80s each, has even more issues. Each decade has more issues than the one before. I mean, the 50s, you know, with the exception of a couple of novels like A Canticle for a Library, the novels of the 50s were fine to put in two volumes. You can get eight novels, nine novels in two volumes. Uh, because everybody was writing to paperback length in the 50s. In the 60s, it becomes more of a problem for two reasons. One, you're getting people writing really long novels. And secondly, you've got a lot of agents and estates that are still very actively interested in uh, keeping stuff in print in a commercial way and not in a kind of canonical way. Sure. 
Let me ask you this, because I don't think we've ever discussed it. How the heck would you do American science fiction of the 80s? Because there's two books in there you have to put in, and that would be interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, what's the, the target, five books or seven books or something? Ideally, what we're doing with the um, 60s volume is is four novels in each of two volumes. So that's, that's yeah, we did nine. We were able to get nine in in the 1950s volume. Yeah. Um, so and of course, the other the problem, 80s probably three in the 80s. And the other problem that comes up with all these volumes is you're representing only novels. Sure, of course. But that's now, okay. With, you know, I mean, there are ways okay. around that too. But I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure you've had conversations about doing the equivalent to what Peter Straub did with the with dark fiction for science fiction. Mm-hmm. The initial discussion was going to be something very much like that. Um, they, uh, the, the initial proposal sent, the, the, when I talked to them was to do two volumes. One would be science fiction short stories, and they wanted to do the 40s. They wanted to do science fiction short stories and science fiction novels of the 1940s. And I explained to them that as far as I could tell, the novels of the 1940s were short stories. They were basically fix-up. There were not very many science fiction novels written and published as science fiction novels. Um, and they didn't really want to do that. Um, they wanted to emphasize novels because novels do better for them, I gather. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've talked about that. And at some point during that discussion, uh, as a matter of fact, probably during the discussions of the fact that the 1950s volume had only one woman in it, Lee Brackett, uh, the idea of coming, well, maybe we should do um, science fiction, American science fiction by women, which is essentially where Lisa Yasek's very good volume came from. So, okay, let's say you're going to do the American science fiction of the 80s. Let's say you're mm. going to get four books per volume, which is a optimistic thing given by the 80s. Well, yeah. Bloated sitting. You've got to, if you can get permission, put Neuromancer in there. Uh-huh. And you've got to, if you can get permission, put speak, uh, put uh, Ender's Game in there. Whether you like the idea or not, you have to put it in there. Well, that raises an interesting philosophical question. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about books which are representative or the most successful novels of a decade? The best novels, I've stayed away from saying these are the best novels. Um, I'm trying, uh, so yeah, if you were trying to represent the most popular novels of the 80s, Ender's Game would probably be at the top of the list. Uh, with I, Neuromancer, I think you're beginning to split a hair that makes no sense, Gary, because what? whilst the fields of sort of fondness for Orson Scott Card has dissipated over time, you're talking about a book which won the Hugo and the Nebula, yes. was a best-selling book and a landmark book and an award-winning book. You know, whether you like it now or not, it was an epochal novel of yes. the 80s. And, 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 and how much influence has it had within the I field? I think in some areas probably quite a lot. I think it's probably had quite a lot, particularly if you follow your evolutionary path down towards the Bane end of the stream. It probably has had quite a lot of influence. I would, I would argue that that's true, and I would argue that to some extent it more or less resurrected. I don't think it created, but it resurrected the market for the young adult space opera. It was a market which had been there before there were young adult as a category. I mean, Heinlein's juveniles have been there. But the idea of a big, uh, basically 
kids book, which appeals to adults, uh, which is a classic space opera in many ways with alien invaders and that sort of thing. That is a major part of the market now, and I think that part of the market has evolved since Ender's Game, or since the whole Ender's series for that matter. Sure. I think you'd probably also have to put in something like Parable of the Sower. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a really solid choice. Some of the big novels of the 80s are just too big. I mean, and by that I well, don't mean uh, copyright permission-wise, like Neuromancer, but just 700 pages long or 600 pages long, and that doesn't work out for what uh, the Library of America can do. Another question comes up with Neuromancer, which I would have to think about. Is that an American novel? Or is that a Canadian novel? Ah, that's interesting. Not, I mean, it's a fair point. It is a Canadian novel, yeah. And then if you take that out, well, what a sadder decade it was for American science fiction than it was a moment ago. <laughs> well, I mean, one of okay, the the, the Pleiades series and in, in French literature have done this for decades now, if not centuries. Well, decades, okay. Um, the idea of the Library of America is United States fiction. I mean, that's sure. the, one, no. of the, one of the biggest complaints I got about the, the 1950s volume was, where is Arthur C. Clarke? And my response was, well, Sri Lanka and before that England, but not the United States. <laughs> yeah. um, so so there, there, there is uh, an, an aspect of American culture that goes into thinking about these things. Um, and, okay, then. Uh, I mean, not that we were ever going to talk about this either, but what for the purposes of – this project is American? That's an interesting question. And my sense is uh, that a book which is written by somebody who's primarily an American, by which I mean somebody who had gained American citizenship. For example, when I was looking at the 1940s, two names that came up, well, 1950s, the name Gordon Dixon came up, but A.E. Van Vogt and Gordon Dixon, both born in Canada, if I'm not mistaken, both moving to the United States before they were teenagers. Uh, I wouldn't have any trouble calling those people American writers because none of their careers took place outside of the United States. Neuromancer is kind of an interesting, it was an American publication. Uh, Gibson had lived in the United States. I don't know whether – I think he may have dual citizenship. I don't know. It's one of the things that people higher, at, at a higher pay grade than, than I am would have to decide. You wouldn't sit there and sort of go, well, how long were you in the United States? Because obviously he went back to Canada, lives in Vancouver, I think, something like that. Yeah. You know, So not actually what you'd call local. Uh, I mean I used to have this question. We used to write about Australian science fiction, and the question came up about mm -hmm. a Bertram Chandler. Exactly. And as you know, a British seaman who – only migrated to Australia in his mid to late 40s. And my argument was that was enough to make him really a British science fiction writer who happened to be living in Australia rather than an Australian science fiction writer. But that's well, what was the is... dearth of Australian science fiction writers that he got claimed. Yeah, and, and, and I don't, to some extent, I don't blame um, you for doing that. I mean, to some extent, this is an issue. We, we've talked to our friend Peter Hallis many times about who is and who isn't a Canadian writer. And if you've got a William Gibson and he's lived anywhere you near you, you want to claim him. There was a study of Canadian science fiction several years ago, for example, and one of the writers discussed in it, if I'm not mistaken, was a uh, Brian Moore, who was an Irish writer who'd written maybe one science fiction novel, so it's not a major figure. And he eventually ended up in Hollywood writing screenplays, but for about a year between moving from Ireland to Hollywood, he lived in Toronto, I think. 
And so he was being claimed as a Canadian writer because he was here long enough. And I, I don't know exactly how you go about defining that. In, in, in Chandler's case, uh, who I actually met once, um, it was not very interesting. But nevertheless. <laughs> I met George Turner once. He was interesting. Okay. he I, George Turner, it strikes me as being somebody who is an almost defining Australian writer in that sense. And yet doesn't come up in conversation a whole lot anymore. And it doesn't seem to be read a lot anymore. I mean, but, the Sea and Summer is still in print, mm -hmm. a.k.a. The Drowning Towers, through the invaluable, frankly, Golan's Masterworks series, mm -hmm. which hopefully will continue because there's something we should talk about, not to get too dog-legged off, but the Golan's Masterworks and, of course, the retirement of the great Malcolm Edwards. We should point out, as Malcolm has pointed out, he's not retiring. He's simply leaving the company. Oh, okay. I thought he would. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure what he means by that. But he, uh, when Locus said something about his retiring, he said, "No, I'm not retiring. I'm leaving Golongs." Okay. Well, nonetheless, one of one of his legacies, one of his many legacies, is the Golans Masterworks. It was his baby. Yes. I had a conversation with Golans about another book going into the Masterworks series in the last six months, mm -hmm. and it was at that point still it was like, well, that's Malcolm's thing. Yeah. And we have to talk to Malcolm to see what he thinks about that idea, right? So very much, you know, uh, and that, that's what keeps the, the Sea and Summer in print, what, what, what keeps a whole bunch of things in print. That's where the uh, Best of R.A. Lafferty found its home. So, yeah. I may have, I actually may, without giving names away, I may have talked to the same author you talked to who was interested in trying to get something. What is the difference between the SF Gateway and the SF Masterworks? I've never understood that. The SF Gateway is a website, and the SF Masterworks as an imprint. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's simple enough. Yeah. I mean, the master, Masterworks are physical books and e-books. Okay. The Gateway is their website, and they do sell e-books through it, but that's – and it also incorporates the science fiction encyclopedia, you know, John Clute's yes. encyclopedia. Right. So that's all tied up with the Gateway and the website. So, yeah. So what you're saying is we have a huge chunk of the current history and shape of science fiction – being put in question by Malcolm Edwards no longer being with Golongs because the science no, fiction encyclopedia. No, no, I'm not saying. No? That. I don't. I have no reason to believe. No one said anything to me. I don't have context necessarily, but certainly I've heard nothing that suggests that the masterworks are at risk. That there's any plans to change the gateway. I mean, this is a conversation we can have in London mm. or in Ireland when yes, we're there in August. But to my knowledge, no. I, w I would not spread that through this podcast. To my, to, nothing to suggest that at all. No, but. As long as we're at it, we are dealing with uh, one of the legendary editors in the history of the field. Yes. Um, and somebody who, well, again, speaking of ancient podcasts, uh, we had uh, Malcolm and, and David Har Harper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, of course, Malcolm uh, was responsible. We are just talking about Bill Gibson for the British edition mm -hmm. of Neuromancer. Came out at the same time as Empire of the Sun, which mm -hmm. he also edited, and a whole bunch of other things. Major, major film. Lovely man. Major major editor and right. publisher and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. But we were talking about books of the 80s. I, I, I don't think it's going to be a sustainable, in, in, you know, after the 70s, your, your series, but I'm, only because of the volume of books and but how you feel, and then how the, the, the field shifts and changes. And possibly, possibly, and this is an interesting point uh -huh. to consider, whether the centrality of American science fiction to science fiction remains consistently true 
after the 80s as it begins to broaden and diversify? I think there are two things. One is that. One is that in the 80s, you no longer have a coherent body of American science fiction, and you have, which is not necessarily a bad thing. The other thing, in terms of the Library of America, and I go back to the idea of whether it's called canonization or not, it's looking historically at American literature. And by and large, if you move outside the science fiction field, if you look at mysteries, for example, they're not doing volumes of mysteries of the 1980s. They're not doing volumes of mainstream fiction of the 1980s. If they have a volume such as Ursula Le Guin or such as Philip Roth, uh, they will publish the late works of that person. But I don't think at this point they're interested in representing the last 30 years of American culture uh, because it's just too recent. Yeah. I mean, I must say, if I were going to predict, and at some point we'll drift away from the Library of America, but the two projects that are obvious to me for them to do, which doesn't mean it's mm -hmm. obvious to them to do, are the science fiction of Samuel R. Delaney and the fiction of Octavia Butler. I know that uh, I don't think I'm giving away much to know that Octavia Butler has been discussed. Um, Delaney is a problem because the science fiction of Samuel R. Delaney is not that difficult to put together in some impressive volumes, and I'm hoping that that will happen, even though Nova won't be part of that because it's part of my set. The whole of Samuel R. Delaney's work, the nonfiction, the criticism, the, um, the autobiographical materials, the long side of sort of un, unclassifiable works like Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders, that's where the problem is. Uh, there's just too much stuff in too many different areas. Um, and I think as a living writer, he would have a choice as to whether he would prefer to have his science fiction represented. You could have plenty of novels. and But the, again, the problem there is how can you do this without Dahlgren? Mm. Well, why would you do it without Dahlgren? Well, you'd have to have multiple volumes then for Delaney. And I think yeah, I my, my, feeling, my feeling is that – my opinion is, which I passed along, is that uh, after Le Guin, Delaney is the most likely person for a multi-volume set. Yeah. Butler, you could get a lot of – you could get most of – well, you could get a fair amount of Butler in one volume. Um, but uh, Delaney has a, long, much, a much longer career than Octavia Butler did yeah. and a much more varied career. And since we're shouting out, inadvertently rather, I'm shouting out to books and projects and things, I note that, friend of the podcast, Neil Gaiman was involved with getting a Folio Society edition of the Book of the New Sun produced by uh, the Folio Society. With Not art, only that. With artwork by Sam Weber, that. and it's the last thing that Gene ever signed. I was going to say, all the plates for it were signed by both Neil and Gene Wolfe. Yes. Uh, and it's not a cheap book. No, no, it's, it's a very handsome, if it's to your taste, set of four mm -hmm. hardcover books, slipcased. I think it's $800 or so. Something which like that. for the Folio Society limited edition type books is, is ballpark. I know that their, yeah. their edition of Dune was about $165, and they've had other things which are more. I think they did quite a gorgeous edition of Ridley Scott, of Ridley Walker. By Russell Hoban mm -hmm. for about five or six hundred dollars, but it was quite beautiful. And I, I saw a comment from Neil online that he obviously he must have a copy of the book of the oh, yeah. Sun and saying that it was quite stunning. Yeah, he had seen that when he was uh, in Peoria for Jean's funeral. As a matter of fact, she had he had just seen the copy of um, the Shadow of the Torturer, I guess. Yeah, 
So yes, so that, there's that. What else is happening in your world since we've waffled around some things and there's the Ursula Gwynn documentary we've talked about, which naturally segued into talking about Dora Goss's book about Le Guin that's going to come out from University of Illinois, hopefully, and then the Library of America. What else is up with us? Or the world? Well, or science fiction? As, 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 well, first of all, as, as long as we're plugging things, I should mention that very shortly the book on Joanna Russ by Gwyneth Jones will be available. Um, I think it's already available in the net gallery or something. It is. Um, I've got, that's where I got, my, got a copy of it from. And okay. And I heartily recommend it. I'm, I'm unsurprised that, that Gwyneth Jones would write a fascinating book about uh, Joanna Russ's work. She has, and you know, I, I encourage everybody to seek it out when it comes available in September, I think. Mm-hmm. What's going on in you? You have anthologies coming out the ears. Do I? I thought, I thought that sounds uncomfortable. <laughs> no, no. I, I had the best science fiction fantasy of the year come out in April, uh, mm-hmm. and that's hopefully doing well. That, that I haven't heard yet, but hopefully it's doing well in the world. And I have Mission Critical coming out, which is a new hard science fiction anthology in July. Mm, uh, so that'll come out just before I go to Clarion, I think. I, I understand that contributor copies are going out even as we speak because somebody was telling me that they'd got their copies. I think Peter Hamilton got his copies. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on a book called Made to Order, which is a book about robots for Solaris. And I'm writing, a, I'm also editing a book, uh, a fantasy anthology that I'm not, I'm still not allowed to talk about despite the fact that okay. it's been signed and set up and the deadline for all the stories is just two weeks away, and the manuscript's due in, in three, so... But I still can't... And the title may change, but I'm still not allowed to say what that is. I have a question which I'm going to ask. Um, a few weeks from now, I'm going to the Locus Awards, and I've been asked to put together a panel on editing. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. You should edit. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, it'll be fun. It'll be my, myself and actually Lisi Asik and uh, Nisi Shaw. I, I forget exactly who's on this panel. And one of the things that occurred to me uh, is that in the science fiction field, the original anthology, such as you have become a master of, is a kind of unique creation. I've seen a handful of anthologies of original mystery stories. I don't know that I've ever seen, at least recently, an anthology of all original literary short fiction stories. Is the original anthology something that belongs mostly to science fiction and fantasy? I'm not enough of an expert in the history of anthologies the way, say, a Bill Contento is to, to mm-hmm. answer that absolutely. But what I would suggest to you is it's probably the remit of genre fiction. I think that there are Western anthologies. I know there are romance, many romance anthologies. There are romance anthologies, that's correct. Uh, there are horror, many horror anthologies fantasy, science fiction anthologies and blends and yeah. mixes of all of those. Now, uh, keep in mind, I'm talking about Anthologies of original fiction, not yeah, reprint. No, 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 yeah. yeah. I think for all of those genres, they have s- some history or other of and, and of producing original anthologies and that they have probably mostly evolved since the, the winnowing down of the magazine era from the 40s, 30s and 40s. That as the magazine market, you know, sort of dissipated, if you like, the anthology mm-hmm. market, the original anthology market, evolved. Um, I think that the, there are small press kind of things in the the broader literary sense, and though they tend to be 
reprint anthologies. So you get pushcart prize type anthologies and oh Henry prize type anthologies. Oh yeah, and and you have you have some literary journals like Conjunctions, which in which each issue is virtually an anthology. Yeah, uh, by and, and, and you get projects like uh, Akasic Presses, uh, you know, like Brooklyn Noir. Um, yeah. Okay, there are things. Those sorts of things they exist very much these days. So, so there are things that bubble around. I don't know that they necessarily have the same coherent history of doing it the, the way science fiction and fantasy does. No, I, the I, real I, thing with particularly theme type anthologies, not just original anthologies, but theme type anthologies. That seems to right. be a, a, re, a real, clear, specific thing. I mean, you get seasonal holiday anthologies elsewhere, but not so much theme ones. Well, theme original anthologies seems to me to be a late development because as far as I could tell, and I was recently looking into histories of anthologies, as far as I could tell, the first original uh, science fiction anthology was something by Healy and McComas in the early 50s called New Tales of Space and Time. They had done their Adventures in Time and Space. It was a hugely successful book, and they wanted to get new writers. Um, and I suspect that – I suspect you're right. I suspect that um, – the rise of the original anthology coincided at various periods with collapses of magazines. The pulps began to collapse in the early 1950s, and you get the star science fiction stories from Frederick Pohl. You get new tales in space and time. Um, there's a paperback sort of collapse later in the 60s, and you start getting the universe and Terry Carr's anthologies and Robert Silverberg's anthologies and so forth and so on. But uh, we may be getting too arcane for anybody but ourselves here. It seems to me that the theme anthology began with probably Groff Conklin. He did thinking machines, space travel, uh, evolutionary fiction, psionic science fiction, this sort of thing. Those are all reprint anthologies. Now, the original, the anthology of original stories organized around the theme, I'm not sure where that began. It's what you're doing now. Yeah, and I mean, that's what Gardner goes on did. You'd have to go back before Elwood. I mean, Elwood was doing them, so you'd have to go back to the 60s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I still think the thing that, that happened in the past that could not happen today is the stuff that happened with Damon Knight's Orbit. I cannot imagine any original anthology series dropping three volumes in a 12-month period. Yeah. That was virtually a magazine. Well, yeah, I mean... And what's more, they're, they're quite baffling by modern anthology standards if you go back and look at them. Mm -hmm. uh, the early orbits, and I think also to some degree the early universes, but orbit more so, uh, because they would re use the same people. Not just the same same in the series, but the same volumes. So there'd be a couple of stories by Kate Wilhelm, and a couple of oh. stories by R.A. Lafferty, and there a couple were two of stories by Jane Wolfe, all in the same volume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and this is partly because Damon Knight had enormous, I gather, enormous clout in the field at that point. That's entirely possible. Uh, or it, it almost feels like he also – he'd had success with the series, uh, the Orbit series. Yeah. And he was probably drawing them from the same group of workshops or something, I'm guessing. I think he was uh, – Really wanting to promote certain writers. I mean, when, when, when you put when you have an original anthology series and you know you have a lot of submissions, and you put two stories by Gene Wolfe in a book or two stories by Joanna Russ in a book, that is saying to your readers, these are writers you need to pay attention to. Uh, and fortunately, in in his case, he had 
almost always first-rate stories from these people. Some of the stories that appear in Orbit and in Universe and in New Dimensions are staggeringly famous stories in the history of the field. Oh, yeah. Staggeringly famous. So, yeah. And one of the early books I reviewed for Locus was called Lafferty and Orbit, and it was nothing but a collection of Lafferty's mm. Orbit stories. Yeah. And you um, could argue which, that the best, most coherent editor of Lafferty in his career was Damon Knight. Probably. Um, and which is one of the things that always strikes me as interesting because Lafferty would strike me as being almost uneditable, but then so would Gene Wolfe. But, but clearly he was – and for that matter, so was Joanna Russ. They were all extremely strong, independent voices. Uh, and I don't know if we'll ever know. Maybe we'll find out. Uh, maybe Gwyneth found out in, uh, in doing the research for this book how much editing Damon Knight actually did for these classic stories. Yeah, I mean, I tried to have a conversation once, and it's interesting. Some people are very forthcoming and affable about what they've done, mm-hmm. and some are less so. I tried to talk to Robert Silverberg about editing Le Guin. Uh-huh. I forget whether it was the ones that walk away from Omelas or the day the revolution came or whatever it was, but there was one of them, and I'm going, like, well, what do you do? He said, oh, I just published it. And I don't know whether there was a lot of coherent editing going on on his behalf, whether it was necessary, or whether it was just Maybe. one of those things. Because I can, to- I can both well believe, because Bob has the, the chops to edit it uh-huh. very, very well and thoroughly, but also that Le Guin had the writing chops to just go, there it is, and you'd go, huh, I'll make sure there are no typos, and then put it in, pr- in press. Um, well, this, yeah, to, to, to a large extent, I know this happened with Gene Wolfe by the time he was, you know, well into his career after the uh, book of the, but, but, but after the book of the New Sun and so forth. I mean, Hartwell had a rapport with him, uh, but by and large, I think what happens when you get this synergy between an editor and a novelist, like you have between the two of them, the novelist pretty much learns what the editor is going to do and does it anyway. Um, and so my sense talking to David and talking a little bit to Gene was that the more they collaborated, the less work David had to do. That, that's possible. That's entirely possible. Um, I mean, after a certain t- time as well, like you, tr- you, you would trust as an editor that Gene knew what he was doing. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was Gene Wolfe for crying out loud. Of course he's going to know what he was going to do. Did I tell you, I, did you see the thing that was – Posted online on somewhere. There's a photo posted online in the last two, maybe three weeks. And it was a photograph of the acceptance letter that Robert Silverberg sent to Gardner Dozois for, I think it was a special kind of morning. Huh. No, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Special Kind of Morning, I think, originally appeared in maybe one of the New Dimensions books. New Dimensions 1 it appeared in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is 1971. And there's Robert Silverberg, he of the I'm very sort of official looking, going like, hey, man, this is the best story. You must be the worst speller south of the Rockies, <laughs> no, east of the Rockies. But this is an incredible story, man. And you're going like, it's the 60s, right? The 60s, it was very right, much yeah. the 60s. And suddenly, for, I mean, I, I, I've never pictured Robert Silverberg as being anything less than about 75 years old. Even when I met him when he was 60 years old, he was still about 75 years old, right? And suddenly yeah. you have this idea that there's this guy sitting in his house, probably before the big fire, probably smoking a lot of marijuana, which I would, never would have thought of with Bob, going, hey, man, and being cool. Uh, I, well, you mean, you've, one of the, I was, again, watching this Le Guin film, there was one shot of Le, 
Guin accepting, I guess, a Nebula Award from Silverberg. And my first thought was the sideburns and the hair is darker. There are sideburns. The hair is longer. Other than that, it's pretty much the same Silverberg we see today. <laughs> but yeah, you'd wonder, I mean, for example, Bob was the original editor on Vaster Than Empires and More Slow. Yeah. You know, and I'm kind of curious, what was it like when that fell through the inbox? You know, that must have been a thing, right? When you went to your, 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 your well, I suppose it's 1971 uh-huh. in Oakland, California, you've gone to your post office box in Montclair to pick it up. I can, I can picture it now. And, uh, it must have been a thing. I would imagine the same thing would have happened when, when Harlan got, um, you know, the, um, manuscript of the word for world is forest. Uh, now he, admittedly he had gone after her and asked her for something, but I don't know. Uh, well, being Harlan, he probably thought everything that he got was going to be a classic. And with the, well, with the dangerous visions anthologies, he was a lot closer to being right than anybody could have suspected. Yeah. I'll apologize. It would appear that my neighbors are going to, are going to be doing something with a buzzsaw in the background for the next 20 minutes of the podcast, so... I'm not hearing it here at all. Yeah? Okay, yeah. well, that's good. But yes, if you, sometimes you look back through the, these uh, story collections and the stuff that these guys got to edit, and you'd like to hope that the, the anthologies that we're seeing today are the equivalent, but I'm, I don't know, Gary. You don't have the, well, the benefit of time. Okay, ask him, without having to give any specific examples, uh, you're, you're a very experienced anthologist yourself now of original stories. Have you gotten a story that you felt was like, okay, this is faster than Empires Were More Slow, or this is something that I can't – this is Seven American Nights, something where you think, I'd better not touch this at all. This is perfect the way it is. Maybe Exhalation. Okay, well, Exhalation is a hard – hard example to top, I suppose. But, I mean, look at this. This is New Dimensions 3. So imagine going to the mailbox. There, there, there's the girl who was plugged in by Tiptree. Yeah. The ones who walk away from Omelas by Le Guin. You know? Uh, I mean, no wonder people thought the anthologies were better back then. Uh, uh, along, along with strong stories by Effinger and Lafferty and, and Carr. And you're kind of going, but, 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 yeah, I mean, that was incredible back then. Mm-hmm. Now it's my turn to apologize for background noise because there apparently is, oh, I guess the zombie apocalypse is over. The, the sirens have gone away. Yeah. But at any rate, um, I, th- I think you're right. The, and, and one of the things that strikes me, given the, you know, given the later reputation, because everybody, Everybody who's a middle-aged white man, I hate to break this to you, everybody who's a middle-aged white man becomes an old white man at some point. And the fact that that a, an incipient old well, white guy, incipient old white guys like Silverberg uh, or, or Terry Carr were soliciting stories from, 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 from Tiptree and from Arcuna Sheldon and from Le Guin and from Russ and so forth and so on uh, is something that I suspect – Retroactively, they deserve some credit for. Probably, probably though, you know, honestly, even in 1970, it wouldn't have been taken a genius to work out you wanted stories from Le Guin. The challenge would be getting them. Well, see, uh, see yeah. I will say this: the thing that made it easy, comparatively speaking, for um, 
for Damon with Orbit, Bob with New Dimensions, and Terry with uh, Universes, they were unthemed. So you could go to a Le Guin and say, exactly. send me a story. And the, it's the unthemed anthology that pretty much doesn't exist today. I suppose that's true. Uh, you had a good run with Eclipse, and I'm not sure there's been one since then that's uh, um, I had a nice thing. run, but I mean, you couldn't argue it was successful. I mean, it got four volumes out. I was very happy with it, but it never sold. But there were some classic stories that came out there's of those four volumes. There's good stories in there, yeah. Um, I, I guess the question is, does the themed anthology constrain you as an editor? Would yes. you today go – okay, would you dare go to Le Guin or Wolf and say, I need a story about a dragon? I have. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, yes, of course I would dare go I mean, go to almost anybody I could think of. And the answers from I mean, the answer from, from Le Guin, which was always lovely, was always the same. Uh-huh. And there's a few other people who give similar answers, and it's basically this. I don't write stories to order, but if I happen to write a story that fits, I'll send it to you. Yeah. And that's lovely and was always very generous, but never quite gelled because they weren't writing stories that fit those themes. But certainly, I mean, Jean actually did write for theme anthologies at times. Jean, well, Jean was perverse in that way because I remember having had conversations with him. I've, I've told this story probably on the podcast before when um, – when we were all misreading the title of Home Fires as Home mm-hmm. Fry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, I, I, and I found out that people in the tour offices were doing the same thing I was doing. And I mentioned that to Gene, and he said, I bet you don't think I could write that one, do you? And I was thinking of the Castle of the Otter. Of Gene course. loved to write things that people didn't think he could write. Yes. Um, and you got the impression that he could write anything he wanted on any theme, and it would still be a Gene Wolfe story. The Island of Dr. Death. Exactly. The death of Dr. Ireland. Exactly. The so, doctor you know, of death Ireland. <laughs> so, yes, there's, there's, there's arguably nothing that he couldn't do. And he was obviously, I mean, because he showed up in odd anthologies as well. Yeah. Moonshots and this sort of thing where he'd have a, a, a story. Le Guin less so. Le Guin less so, but, you know. So, yeah, uh, it, it would be lovely to see an unthemed original anthology. But the truth is that the market won't bear it these days. They have, a, you know, there's a lot of original short fiction you can read without paying for it at all. It's and true. beyond that, people are a little bit wary. I mean, probably this year, the closest to it, I mean, you mentioned this panel you're doing is with Nisi mm-hmm. Scholl. Nisi yes. Scholl edited a very fine anthology, I have to tell you, if you've not read it, called New Sons. Came out from I've Solaris heard. this year. And you should go down to your bookshop, if you remember where it is, and go buy a copy because it's a really good book. And you'd be able to talk to Nisi about it on your panel. That's a very something I should do. I should go down to my bookstore while it's still there. Although there's a piece of there's a piece of salutary information. Salutary, salutary. Good and good news in the United States, which is that Barnes and Noble, which is the last great chain mm. in the United States, has now been bought by the same company that owns Waterstones. Yes, which is not a bad thing at all. I think it's a consolidation of a limited market. Uh, I think it, uh, from from people I've heard in publishing, it bodes well for the survival of Barnes and Noble stores. Um, it's, it's ironic that here in Chicago, for example, maybe 20 years ago or so, Waterstones actually opened up. Waterstones tried to get a, uh, a kind of foothold in the United States. And when Barnes and Noble and Borders came in, Waterstones was run out of business. So there's something sort of uh, – 
fittingly ironic about Barnes & Noble having vanquished Waterstones in Chicago now being more or less owned by them. That's probably mean-spirited. They're both owned by the same company, which is, I don't know, a tire company or a instant lube factory or something. I don't know what it is. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. So you're going to go to the Locus Awards? Uh, we're going to the Locus Awards. It should be a lot of fun. Um, there will be some panel discussions. I don't know exactly what they are yet. I know Liz Hand and uh, uh, Malal Motar will be there um, and, 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 and some old friends and all the people in Seattle, which has one of the great speculative fiction communities in the United States, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that should be fun. I don't know. Uh, and I think I've been asked to accept the award for somebody. I better find out who that was who asked me. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> ah, well, I mean, I will be interested to follow along at home, Gary, as I have low these many years. But you'll be in, uh, in in Seattle not long after that. That's true. I'll be there and I will be on stage. I'll be live on stage, Gary, at the University Bookstore, I think it is. What? Uh, what, what yeah. Wait a minute. Uh, on the 20, 27th of June, maybe, July, maybe? Let me just double-check the date. I will give you the date because I once I can pin the dates down on my calendar. Well, uh, I knew you were taking we? the 24th. Uh-huh. On the evening of the 24th of July, uh, I will be in conversation, in a conversational sort of way, with uh, Jack Dan. That sounds be, delightful. I, be, I believe in a move which kind of leaves me a little bit uncomfortable, we will be interviewing one another. So that will be interesting. And you can come it, and see me there if you want to, if you're somebody who's going to be there. And, and as I say, there are a lot of people in Seattle who will want to see that. I will be gone from Seattle before then, unfortunately. So you and I won't see each other until Dublin, I guess. That's right. We will see each other in Dublin. Before we go, though, and we're almost at the very end, I've been thinking about adding a new segment to our podcast, Gary. I have two, so let's you try your segment. You, my segment is I will, I, will, I, will, I will mention the name because I don't think it mind. Uh, a week or so ago, I saw an exchange between you and uh, Kelly Robson on Twitter. Kelly had met Sean Stewart, who was one of my favorite writers. He's a terrific writer, a terrific guy who's kind of been away from the field for a while. And I thought, and, and, and he was apparently very pleased that Kelly was a fan of his. You're a fan of his. I'm a fan of his. Um, he used to come to ICFO, which I was at all the time. Um, and I thought it's interesting to look at a generation of writers. Maybe a generation is the wrong word. But writers who – well, let me put it this way. We talk about new, exciting writers. We talk about people whose careers have taken off spectacularly within the last few years. Uh, the Nora Jemisons, the Ann Leckies, for example, the people who are probably going to have careers – taking off dramatically like River Solomon. You have a a novella by her coming out. And there we talk a lot about writers who have continuing high-profile careers, the Kim Stanley Robinsons, for example. And we talk about older writers. We talk about Zelazny and and, and, and Heinlein. What about these writers who published some really spectacular fiction in the 90s, let's say between 1990 and 2010? And maybe haven't been writing as much anymore. Uh, in some cases, they've uh, given up on the field. In some cases, they've moved into other fields. 
in one or two tragic cases like Mary Rosenblum, they passed away. Um, is anybody talking about that period of time? I mean, we always talk about the 80s. What about the 90s? What about the aughts? Uh, well, part of writers like we're Patrick, older, but yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, when you say, well, yeah, oh, you mentioned this before. I saw that this guy passed, right? And I, uh -huh. I tried to think to myself, who would I say is forgotten, who's left the field? Who maybe started their career after 1990, say. Mm -hmm. uh, and now Sean Stewart is a particular example because, as I understand it, book sales weren't immediately rewarding, and he happened to find uh, writing for interactive media and interactive games rewarding, and followed that and became insanely successful doing that, and and so stopped uh -huh. writing yeah. novels. And as I understand it, the last time I spoke to Sean or interacted with him, had no real interest in going back to writing novels, unfortunately. I think he had a final novel that came out from Small Beer, and then that was that. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not sure who, who I'd think of. I'd have to really give it... Sometimes names well, come bubbling I'm not, up. I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about people who have left the field or people who have given up on the field, but people who have... Or even if they have, people who have written novels that are significant. Uh, Alex Irvine is another name that comes to, to mind. He'd written a couple of very important novels. He went elsewhere for a while. Uh, Patrick O'Leary is a name who comes to mind. Some, sure, some yeah, fine yeah, novels. Yeah. He wrote one or two, uh, and, and uh, David Marichek would be another one. David Marichek, although he's self-published uh, his current series of novels, uh, which I don't think is complete at this point. But to some extent, a lot of people who had very, very high-profile names – for a period of time between the early 90s and the late teens, uh, late, late aughts, I guess, um, those novels are the ones that get lost in the discussion because they're not old enough to be forgotten classics. They're not old enough to be you know, canonical in that sense, and they're not recent enough to be um, uh, buzzwords anymore. I thought one of well, – I'm, I'm interested in Alex for, because The Scattering of Jades – won one of the early Crawford Awards, and I still think it's a terrific novel set in a kind of 1840s, 1850s New York that is now become kind of a trendy thing to write about. Yeah. What about Mary Doria Russell? Mary Doria Russell seems to have, I don't know what's happened, seems to have At disappeared. At least stepped away from science fiction. Yeah. After The Sparrow, uh, I, which was such a I, huge novel for a while there. Yeah, The Sparrow and... The sequel, whose title is escaping me at the moment, um, but again, I, I think possibly moving into historical fiction. I'm not sure, um, but because somebody doesn't contain that, that doesn't continue to uh, maintain a web presence, doesn't continue to go to conventions, doesn't continue continue to be a visible part of the community. Mm -hmm. That's no reason for their excellent novels and short stories to, to, to just fade away, it seems to me. Well, um, no, it's not. Though, though, I mean, I also thought when you raised this that one of the things you have to, I would take into account is some of it is the natural turnover of ideas and evolution of something like the science fiction field and just the, the, the churn of publishing. Things fall away. You know, look at look, look, Roberta McAvoy. Well, that's a, that's another good example. Although there was a, a recent, she did do a recent sequel to Tea with the uh, Dragon, Tea with the Black Dragon, didn't she? I think she did. She I did know something. That she's written recently, but I don't know what the, what the books are. But I mean, there there are a lot of pe there are a lot of people who have written books that are. One of the things that struck me about um, 
this documentary, for example, is one of the people who was not featured in it was Molly Gloss, who kind of grew up in a way with Le Guin during that period. Molly Gloss wrote some terrific stuff. I think she's uh, continuing to write. I think it's more regional and uh, maybe historical material, but there were some very good science fiction novels in there as well. Um, and I think that this is uh, it, it's, it's not that this is not inevitable to some extent. Sure. It's the turnover of publishing. But there is this sense that you know, we will resurrect, let's be honest, we will resurrect third-rate Heinleiner's Elasny or Le Guin novels from the 60s, of which there are some, let's be honest. Can I just say, okay, my least, my least look forward to a book of 2019, 666. Mm-hmm. Which is what? That's, that's the churned over, you know, you know, regurgitated, spat out, expanded edition of The Number of the Beast that's coming out as a new novel. And I'll get in exactly trouble. What I, I will get criticized in comments for this comment because what I should say is that Heinlein wrote an alternate version of the Number of the Beast, which was known as the Panky Barsoom Number of the Beast, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible title, I, I and heard which that was term. embedded into the bowels of the Heinlein archive, never to be released, and then is being edited by Pat Labruto to come out through some ancillary subset of some press or other, um, and like meh. The thought, the, the very thought that the number of the beast was edited at all is appalling. Um, like sixty thousand more words, Gary. But 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 this this is what I mean. This is what I mean about the reputation of writers versus the reputation of novels. Uh, each of, each of the writers we've mentioned just previously, and we could add a lot more to it. You could you could add names from back in the sixties. You could add names like Tom Remy. There are people who have written books which are much better than books by canonical writers that get resurrected. And 666 is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea of resurrecting uh, and novelizing, for example, early Arthur Clarke efforts, which has been done, um, Asimov efforts, this sort of thing, we will will continually return to and reprint mediocre works by major writers where there are major works by less well-known writers that are allowed to just kind of Float away. We're One of the things that gets my idea for my segment at this rate. Okay, 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 okay. Right. So your idea, your idea is is okay. Nineteen ninety nine. It's the last year of the of the nineteen hundreds, if not the actual end of the millennium, depending on how you count. But nonetheless, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. It's all about the millennium bug. Short segment. Twenty years ago today, what was happening twenty years ago this month? What happened in science fiction twenty years ago? It's like twenty years ago th- this month. Uh-huh. The June issue of Asimov's came out, which included uh, Jim Ke- J- James Patrick Kelly's uh, Hugo Award-winning 1016 to the, to, to, the, to the Power of One and uh-huh. a couple of other great stories, that kind of thing. That would be my idea because one of the questions you, that's worth, worth thinking is about is how, if you take that as a potentially epochal kind of a date, 1999, has the uh-huh. field changed between 1999 and 2019? has changed quite a lot. It's changed quite a lot, and in a sense, this segues into my my topic of, of, of writers who are writing interesting things back then that may or may not have faded away. You're right, 1990. I'm, I'm looking up right now. What was I reviewing in 1999 at this time? I had just finished reviewing Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon, mm-hmm. which you could make an argument was the inauguration of the Neil Stevenson age in science fiction. <laughs> it's certainly, I would make the argument, is his best. Pro- yeah, it's his best book. His most interesting book. I don't think he's written anything half as interesting since that book came out. I think Diamond Age is interesting in a completely different way. 
And I think as a novel, Diamond Age... No, 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 Diamond Age preceded it. Diamond Age preceded Cryptonomicon? I'm pretty sure. Well, check that out. Because I think that what happened was, if you were to go back, and I'll check it out even as we speak, you'll hear click clacks in the background, listeners, because I didn't check that. Because my recollection is that uh, Snow Crash came out, then the Diamond Age came out. Oh, you're right. Right, Snow Crash... uh, Snow Crash, and then the Diamond Age, and then Cryptonomicon. Yep. And I would then argue that with Cryptonomicon in 1999, Neil Stevenson wrote his last major book. Depends on what you mean by major. If you're talking about weight by volume. Nope, not. Okay. Um, I don't argue, I, I don't agree with that. I think everything after that is a summation of Cryptonomicon again. And Cryptonomicon remains, as far as I'm concerned, the best example of that. It, it, as an example of that, you're probably as, – as a relatively condensed example of that, I'm very fond of uh, the Baroque cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, it's, it's a bunch of novels sort of shuffled like a deck of cards. Into but isn't it basically just more of the same? The ideas are the same, but the ideas are expanded and developed and so forth and so on. I mean if you read an essay, it's like reading – I don't know. I don't know anything about the history of philosophy. It's like Kant wrote a good 100-page essay, and pretty much everything he wrote after that is an expansion of that. There's nothing wrong with expanding your ideas and developing them historically. The ideas in Cryptonomicon, which essentially were divided between World War II and the near future, are ideas which he then expanded into the Enlightenment, into the American experience – you're right. They're the same ideas, but I, there's nothing wrong with a writer exploring the oh, same no, no, ideas. No, no, no. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm, so what I'm saying to you is, and we'll wind up in a minute because we're over our hour, is that if you're going to talk about Neil Stevenson, if you read Snow Crash, The Diamond Age, and Cryptonomicon, you've got it. I think you've got it in terms of science fiction. I don't think you've got it in terms of the kind of intellectual fiction in which he sees himself as writing. Now, admittedly, there are places where he goes off the rails. Everyone uh, does. Everyone does. Uh, but there's been a remarkable consistency in some of the ideas which he promotes, and even the most recent novel, which I don't think succeeds in all kinds of ways. It doesn't. It succeeds in some ways. There are some central ideas in that that you can trace back to Snow Crash and Cryptonomicon, and they're presented in a different way because it's a different era. My daughter is producing a podcast for her school called The Big Couch. You know what they think? They the think that couch? teenagers won't, don't want to listen to a podcast that's more than 20 minutes long. Well, we'll just chop these up into 20-minute segments, won't they, and fool them. I reckon you'd be hard-pressed to find 20 minutes in here that would interest a teenager. Um, maybe not. Here's an idea. Okay. Uh, here's an idea, which you can present this to your daughter, because it's Neil Stevenson's idea, and it's the best idea in his new novel, Fall. Yeah. And that is – and it, it, it's, a, it's an idea which relates back to the entire Baroque cycle. His idea was – that at some point around the 17th century, the idea of science describing the world became more or less widely accepted. It became the view of the world that we built our civilization around. And with the rise of the Internet and alternate realities and alternate facts, that consensus view of reality, which has survived in Dennis Wall for 300 and some years, is collapsing, is evaporating. Okay, and on that note, I would say to you that we're now (laughs) three whole minutes past the end of our hour, Gary. Well, that's three minutes into the next 20-minute podcast that kids will listen to, isn't it? No. 
But yeah, okay. it's been fun. Okay. I will right. hopefully talk to you next week. Because you're not going Let's to the Locust Awards guys. next week. It's the week after that, isn't it? Uh, no, a uh, week after that we go to the Locust Awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So next I'll talk week. to you next week. And then, you, then maybe you'll record a, a podcast at the, the Locust Awards. We'll see, you, we'll see if we can get there. That'd be great. Okay. Um, okay. All right. But for now. Meanwhile, this, this has been the Coot Street Podcast. Yeah. We're so sleepy. Yeah, we are.